0: Hello, and welcome back to the New River Church podcast. Today we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Luke called Jesus, the Inviting Messiah. We look forward to getting to know the gospel better together with you, and we hope that today's message encourages you and blesses you. For more information, check out newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter one. This morning, we're going to begin a study in the gospel of Luke. And um, Pastor Robin and I are pretty excited about bringing this to you and uh, believing that God's gonna do something pretty amazing through this whole season, this whole time. Um, Jesus is a uh, bigger than you've ever imagined. Would you agree? Safe to say, Jesus is also different than we would have expected. I was just thinking as we were singing, thank you for the blood. Like, who would have ever come up with that plan? Have you ever thought about what we celebrate as Christians, that God would become flesh and then die on a cross and shed his blood and that we would be singing songs about blood? Is that, is that not a little weird in any other context? you see that? See, Jesus is different. And, and this is what the Gospel of Luke is really getting at. There are a lot of, of funny ideas about Jesus, We've got the Hollywood version of Jesus with his curly hair and his lotiony hands and his blue eyes. You know, we've got the religious version of Jesus. He's kind of like a velvet painting on the wall over there with the bleeding heart and the, you know, we've got, you know, you got all these pictures of Jesus, but are they the real Jesus? Jesus. And the truth is, we're not the first ones to wrestle with this and trying to understand, trying to wrap our minds around this Jesus. Sometimes we make him too small so that he's really can't even be trusted. And sometimes we make him so big or so far out there that he's not accessible. So who is he? Um, And People have been debating this for a long time. Even in Jesus' own lifetime, people wrestled with who he was. And at, into the first century, in the second century, after Christ's life, uh, early church fathers wrestled with who he was. Is is he a man? Well, he's he's too much God to be man. Or is he God? He's too much like a man to be God. He, he, uh, and we got our minds all twisted around trying to understand who he is, right? And it's into this controversy, I'll say, into, into all of this malaise that Luke is writing. Um, Luke tells us exactly why he's writing. And we need to understand Luke is a gospel. And a gospel is a very specific kind of um, writing. Uh, it's, it's history, but it's more than history. Because just history, it's not just history. History where you get the dates, the names, and the facts, and the timelines, and that's all important. And a gospel is history, but it's history with a purpose. And Luke has got an intention. He's, he's giving us the, the, the events of Jesus's life, and he's presenting them to us in order to move us somewhere. And that's what makes it a gospel. It's important to understand. Where is Luke trying to take us? Well, look at Luke chapter one. By the way, you're gonna need to keep your Bibles open here to the first four chapters because we're going to be skimming these chapters in our time together. But Luke chapter one, he tells us right off the bat why he's writing many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Who is this Theophilus guy that Luke is writing to? Well, there's actually two strong theories about him. One theory says that Theophilus was a rich man, a wealthy person who funded the writing of Luke. So back then in the first century, writing was extremely expensive and people were too busy really trying to survive. Uh, If you think about it, they're worried about their crops making it. They didn't really have time for frivolous kinds of things like writing. And so it required somebody with some means to be able to fund the project. And some people think Theophilus was that wealthy benefactor who funded Luke's writing. Other people think that Theophilus is a code name because the name Theophilus means lover of God. So maybe Luke is just a using that as a code for all Christians, all lovers of God, as it were. So you can decide which one you think it is. But Luke tells us exactly why he's writing. Look at verse four again. I'm writing, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is saying, I'm, I'm giving you what I've learned about this person of Jesus Christ so that you can be definite, so that you can be certain about who he is. Let's just cut through all of the noise about Jesus and here's who he is. Does that make sense? This is what Luke's doing. Now, the first thing that you and I need to do to understand who Jesus is and to cut through our own screwy ideas about Jesus, the first thing that we need to do is get over Christmas. And I'm not saying that because I'm a Grinch and I'm against Christmas. Not at all. I love Christmas. But every year, we whip out the Gospel of Luke, and we only ever make it to the third chapter. Not even that. We make it to the second chapter because we love the picture of you know, the angels singing and the baby Jesus in the manger and no crying he makes. And then that's as far as we go. And then we put Luke away for another year and we forget something very important. The Christmas story is Luke's introduction. He didn't write the gospel to leave you at Christmas. And we need to let Jesus grow up. There's a lot more to his life. Than the baby Jesus in the manger, Amen. So, what's Luke doing in his introduction in these first couple of chapters? Well, there's four things that he's doing, and I want to—I'm calling them seeds. Uh, think of it as Luke plants these seeds at the beginning of his book that then he's going to take and develop throughout the rest of the book. Does that make sense? So here's four seeds that Luke has put down, and we're just gonna look at these four seeds today and apply them to our lives, but I'm hoping that it'll just really set the stage for our study in the next couple of months. So that's what we're doing today, okay? This is intro 101. So the four seeds that Luke puts down in the first couple of chapters of Luke, the first one is the seed of hope the seed of hope. First of all, you notice you got two babies. That's how he begins. Could there be anything more hopeful than a baby? There's something about that new life, you know, that freshness. Where are they going? What's it going to be, right? The whole open blank slate for them. It's just lots of hope when a baby is born. And the same is true with these two babies. Only these two babies are special because these two babies both were predicted by angels And they were both miraculous births. So the first baby is John. Uh, John became John the Baptist. He obviously wasn't called John the Baptist in Luke 1, okay? But uh, he's a baby there. But John, he's born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We meet them in chapter 1. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are an older couple, well past the time when they could naturally give birth to a child. And yet, there is a miracle, baby John. And the second baby that we read about, of course, is the baby Jesus. And, well, we know, I mean, that's a virgin birth. Unprecedented, unrepeated in the history of the world. Miraculous. And so right away, you got to say, something special is happening. We've got these two babies And the first baby, John, he, John is sort of reminiscent of what happened with Abraham and Sarah when in their old age, they gave birth to a miraculous baby, baby Isaac. And so we, we've got some context for that a little bit. And you notice he starts with John, but then he sets that up, uses that to set up the birth of Jesus, which is Completely unprecedented. We've got no boxes in our minds for a virgin birth in the history of the world. So that really makes you go, wow, I wonder what's going on. It's a seed of hope he puts in there. And then in the first couple of chapters, we also have just hints of a new creation, which is also a seed of hope. Because you see, look look at chapter one, verse... 35, verse 35, Mary's talking to the angel Gabriel. Gabriel says, you're about to have a baby. Mary says, how can that be? I'm a virgin. And the, and the angel answers this, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You see that word overshadowed? That word overshadow is the Greek form of a Hebrew word that gets used in Genesis 1, 2, the second verse of the whole Bible. And if you go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it's on your first page, all right? First page, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, overshadowing the waters is the word, same word. So do you get it? Here's Genesis one, the Spirit of God is overshadowing the waters. And from those waters, land emerges, and the birds and the fish and the sky and all of that come. And then over here in Luke, you've got the Holy Spirit overshadowing the womb of Mary. See? And you get and then there 's more new creation hints. We, Jesus then is baptized in Luke chapter three. Baptism is always a picture of new creation. The old is gone, all things have become new, but Jesus comes out of the water. follow the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters, land emerges out of the water, He separates the two. Holy Spirit hovers over Mary and Jesus comes out of the water, right? Okay, what happens in Genesis chapter three after God creates Adam? Genesis chapter three, Adam is tempted and Adam fails. Adam gives in to sin. Bad day for humanity, wouldn't you agree? We're all in a pickle because of that day. In Luke chapter one, two, and three, again, follow it, Jesus The Holy Spirit's overshadowing Mary. Jesus comes out of the water. Jesus gets tempted. And does Jesus give in to the temptation? No, Jesus overcomes the temptation. He doesn't fail. And so Jesus is a new Adam. And he's the son of God. Oh, no, wait, Luke tells us that. If you go to Luke chapter three, Luke talks about the baptism of Jesus and then Jesus, you know, here's the voice of God uh, in verse 22, you are my son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. And then Luke gives us something that we often overlook. Nobody likes to read these. They're genealogies. We don't like genealogies. Filled with all these weird names, people we don't know, names we can't pronounce. So we usually skip over them. But you understand that when you're studying the Bible, genealogies are actually really important. They they really provide the glue. I know they're they're not exactly devotional reading. You know, you're not gonna like you know put it on a sticker and oh that's my that's my life verse. <laughs> no, nothing like that. But they tell you a lot about this. They they move the plot of the Bible. And here's what Luke does. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy. All the way back to, we won't read all the weird names. Skip to verse 38, chapter three. Jesus is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke traces Jesus's lineage all the way back to Adam, back to God. Do you see? Jesus is the new Adam. There's a new creation that's happening here. The angel overshadows the, see, get it? Cool. So now we're thinking, hmm, what kind of new creation is God making? What is he forming? What's he doing? And he's going to spend the rest of, Luke will spend the rest of his book unfolding that. The second seed is the seed of justice. We read this in in Mary's song in Luke chapter one. Mary, uh, you know, she, she's pregnant with Jesus. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John. And then they have this great moment. And Mary breaks out in this song, in this prophetic song. In verse 52, she says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God is turning the world upside down. He is flipping it. The rich who have exploited the poor, they walk away empty. The poor who have long been hungry walk away with filled bellies. God is flipping the script. Justice. It goes a little bit further. I love how chapter 3 opens. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, they sort of make me just chuckle every time I read them. Here's how it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you get it? Okay, let me explain it to you a little bit. These names in chapter three, verse one, these are the power brokers of the day. He starts with Caesar, the most powerful man himself, top dog, and then you've got Pontius Pilate, the governor, and then you've got these three sons of Herod the Great who were also rich, powerful rulers, and then you have the high priest Annas and his son Caiaphas who are top dogs in the religious world. You've got all the power brokers. Who operate and run in the halls of power, right? Whose whose voices, whose edicts can literally bring death or life to people. And who does the word of God come to? John. You know that kid that Zechariah had? That one? John. And where does it come? The wilderness. Isn't that something like we have this thing, we think that if God's gonna move, he's gonna start in Washington, D.C. at the White House? I'm not so sure that's biblical. It seems like God's gonna move in your house first. Amen. God just, I mean, it's not like that's unimportant. I'm not saying that's unimportant to God. It is important to him. But it's just, we think, oh, that's where you have to go. And God says, no, I don't have to. I can start over here in the wilderness. I can start over here in your basement and start doing a great work and a move that changes the world in your basement, right? It's awesome. It's just a whole different way of looking at it. And then you have on the night of Christ's birth, the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. On the whole earth, not just on a special few, it's for the whole earth, right? And then one last one, is, is uh, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple and they're dedicating him. He, it's his eighth day. He's eight, years, eight days old. They're bringing him to the temple to be circumcised, essentially to be dedicated and like good Jewish parents would. And as they do, they're greeted at the temple with Simeon and Anna, this, these two old people. And Simeon takes a hold of the baby Jesus and he says this in um, chapter 2. Um, he says, he says that. Uh, oh boy! Now I have to find it. There it is. Chapter two, verse twenty nine. Simeon takes Jesus, and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Okay, Jesus is a Jewish baby born into a Jewish world, being brought by his Jewish parents into the Jewish temple, going through a Jewish ceremony. You follow the theme? Simeon is an old Jewish man and he takes a hold of this Jewish baby And he says that he's going to be a light for the Gentiles, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Okay, in the first century, the dividing line between Jew and everybody else was rigid. You you can't overstate how rigid that line was. To the Jew, in their mind, Gentiles were the oppressors. They had been under Gentile, oppressive Gentile rule for hundreds of years, okay? So essentially, the Gentiles were the enemy. And here, this Jewish, old Jewish man holds Jesus, this Jewish baby, and he says, he will be a revelation for light to the Gentiles. God has come to our enemies? That's a head scratcher. You see the seed of justice? In other words, right away, Luke is beginning to say, look at this Messiah, he is operating in a different world and he's going to make things right, but he's going to make them right in a very different way than what you might anticipate. See, when, when I think about God making something right, when I think about justice, you know what I think of? I think of God judging all of those people and overlooking my sin. True. But following Jesus, I come to realize I'm like the worst of sinners. And so I kind of would like him to have mercy on me <laughs> too, <laughs> right? And, and what, we, what we begin to learn and realize as we study the gospel of Luke is that Jesus is coming to bring justice. He is. He is the perfect one who takes the place of every other sinner, of every other imperfect one. He's the perfect son who dies in the place of the prodigal sons and daughters. And in that, justice is served. The wrath of God is met because only God can die for the sins of all of humanity. And that he loves my enemies as much as he loves me. I know that's hard to think of because some of us are pretty hurt by other people, but it's the truth. So he plants this seed of justice in the first couple of chapters that he's gonna begin to unfold as he writes. The third seed is the seed of conflict. As you can imagine, if he's doing something different, if he's flipping the world on its head, well, that's going to create conflict. And Simeon says this to Mary as they're standing there in the temple dedicating the baby Jesus. Simeon says to her, a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's just not a very nice thing you say to a new mom. Let me think through that. Here's this nice heartwarming moment. Can you imagine us having a baby dedication and, you know, it's all so cute and everything and, oh, you get this, and yell, by the way, this kid's gonna be a sword in your soul, right? Woo, thank you, I think. And then we have the temptation of Jesus in, uh, in, in temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter three. Or nope, man, I've got them all mixed up. In Luke chapter, uh, yeah, Four. four, there we go. As four opens up, you got the temptation of Jesus. And do you notice something? That it's the devil who opposes Jesus? You know, when you have a big job, you don't send the new guy, right? The devil does not delegate this task to some underling in hell. The devil himself opposes Jesus in the garden right? And then Pastor Robert and I were talking about this a couple days ago, and he made this note that, that all three of the temptations of Jesus have to do with avoiding death, that the devil's tempting him to avoid death. The first time, it's, it's avoid death by starvation. He's hungry. He Turn the stones into bread. The second time, it's avoid death on the cross. Hey, just worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. You don't even have to do the cross thing. Just worship me. You got them all. And the third, the third time it was, you can avoid death by jumping off this roof. And, oh, God will catch you. Angels will catch you. It'll be okay. It's so all three temptations had to do with avoiding death of some sort. So you begin to get this picture. Like death looms over the head of Jesus. The storm clouds are starting to gather around him already at the beginning of his life and his ministry. See? And you begin to realize, hmm, this, this, this person, Jesus, he is uh, going to be um, stirring up a lot of conflict in his life. And you see that in the Gospel of Luke over and over and over again. You don't challenge the powers that be and flip it on its head without some conflict. And then the third seed that Luke plants here in the first couple of chapters is the seed of revelation, I'm calling it. In chapter one, verse 79, Zechariah is holding baby John and he sings, you know, he prophesies over John and he says these words in chapter one, verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide, to guide our feet. So in other words, there's God is revealing something. He's putting a light on our path. He's saying, okay, human race. Okay. People, here's the way out, right? We're in this dark Valley under the shadow of death. And he says, now, here's how you go. Let me light the way for you. Follow, go this way. See, and there's another way that we see revelation come out here as well, and I love this. So the Gospel of Luke begins and ends with Jesus getting lost. Um, and it serves as really a uh, like, like bookends, if you will. He gets lost in the beginning, gets lost at the end, and then Jesus, and Luke spends the whole middle part of his book um, basically revealing... Jesus is and so let me just just show it to you for a second so go to Luke chapter 2 verse 41 and we have the first scene where Jesus gets lost and maybe you're familiar with this a little bit but Jesus's parents they go to Jerusalem for a feast and they're all there and the feast is over and his parents take off to go back home and they realize that they left Jesus back in Jerusalem he's not with their caravan so they lost Jesus, as it were. And so Luke tells us that they go back to Jerusalem looking for him, and look at Luke chapter 2, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they're Okay, first of all, the thought of losing my kid for three days, terrifying thought. Amen, parents, can you just imagine? That would be the worst three days of my life. And then they finally find Jesus and they realize He's just hanging out in the temple, teaching all the rabbis and the leaders from the scriptures and answering questions and having a grand old time. And so Mary responds to him, I think the way that any anxious mother would respond. She says, verse uh, 48, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Where have you been? Jesus goes, why were you searching for me? All right, at that point, as the dad, I have my hands around his 12-year-old scrawny neck, and I'm going, what do you mean? Why were we searching for you? We're worried sick about you, kid, right? Jesus is like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? Jesus asks then, didn't you know I had to be, that's a key word, I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know that I had to be So see, Jesus is sort of lost in two ways there, isn't he? He's he's physically lost because his parents don't know where he is. But he's also sort of lost to his parents because they don't understand what he's doing. Follow that kind of two forms of lostness there? And Jesus says, don't you understand? I, I had to be in my father's house. Okay, hang on to that. And then you go to the end of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 24. And we read when Jesus gets lost again. And this time it happens after his death and his resurrection. This takes place on Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. He's walking the road and he encounters two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he saunters up to them and begins to talk with them. And he says, hey, what's going on? And these two guys are like, have you been under a rock? Like, you don't know what's happened in Jerusalem these days. And here's where we pick up the story, verse 19. Jesus goes, well, what things are happening? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, duh, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God. And all the people, the chief priests and our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him, but... We had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day. How many days has he been missing? Three days. The third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. Oh, so he's missing again? We've lost him again, yeah. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not, now catch the similar language, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what does Jesus do? He's doing some more explaining, isn't he? He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see the connections? So as Luke begins, he's 12 years old. He's lost for three days. His parents find him in the temple doing what? Explaining the scriptures. And then he has to kind of confront his parents, or let's say, correct his parents. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? So he gives them the real, what's really going on. And then Luke ends in chapter 24 with, again, Jesus being lost for three days. And these two disciples, he has to explain the scriptures to them and tell them how he had to suffer and die. I love that. And everything in between, you see, is Luke explaining to you and me, the reader, revealing to you and me, the reader, who this Jesus is. See? You and I are just like his parents and we're like those disciples. Um, we, we lose him. We lose Jesus. We, we, we misunderstand him. We, we don't get it. We, we, we get lost. Some, we get lost, right? We... And Jesus needs to reveal. We need revelation from God to see Jesus for who he is and the greatness of who he is. And then there's this one little piece, keep on going in Luke chapter 24. They approach the village and Jesus goes in to stay with these guys and then come to verse 30. When he was at the table with them, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks Broke it and then began to give it to them. And look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's pretty cool. So Jesus, um, Jesus, the Word of God, the one who wrote the word of God. He's the the flesh embodiment of the word of God. Jesus is explaining the word of God to these two men and they still don't see that it's him. But they see that it's him when they see him take the bread, give thanks, break it, and give it to them. You see, it's, I think, here's my theory, and maybe this is a fun discussion point. Robert and I were just chatting about it or like maybe it's because like they didn't have any kind of context for the for the resurrection in their minds like the the resurrection hadn't really like sunk in yet you know but they knew Jesus as one who breaks bread gives thanks and serves it they've seen Jesus do that over and over again In the gospel of Luke, sitting at a table, giving thanks, breaking bread, serving it. And it's like, that's how they knew Jesus. They they recognized him as the inviting Messiah. They recognized him as the host, as the one who served, who kept a place open at his table and he would serve people bread. That's how they recognized him. That's how they saw him. I think it's beautiful. There's one other little quick thing that we need to bring out as well. So Luke, there's a movement in Luke uh, that is important to not miss. Luke begins chapters one, two, three, and 4. The center of action takes place around the temple. Zechariah is at the temple. Simeon and Anna are at the temple. Jesus is brought to the temple. It's all centered there. As Luke ends, the center of action takes place around a table. From the temple to a table. It's it's almost like God is like insisting, you know what? Don't don't keep me locked up inside some cathedral somewhere. Like, bring me into your real life. I'm I'm the host. Bring me to the table. See, he sets the table for you and me. This is the God who loved you so much that he was unwilling to stay in heaven without you, but he came here for you. And then he, and then he demonstrates his love for you over and over and over again by inviting you to his table. He's the divine host. You know, sometimes our, I think our language needs to change because sometimes we talk about inviting God into our house, right? Right? Isn't it really him inviting us into his? Or we, or we talk about like God, inviting God into my heart. And I know that's nice and I know what we mean, but isn't it really like I need to, he's inviting me into his heart. He's welcoming me into his space. Like I'm the prodigal, I'm the one that ran away and God is the one who has pursued and he says, come back, my son. Like he's welcoming me, see, I know it's semantics, perhaps, but I think there's truth in that. We want to be careful. Jesus is this Messiah who invites us to his table and breaks bread and reveals himself in that way. You know, the challenge for you and me is this. That in revealing himself to us, Jesus also reveals me. And he reveals my own dark motives that Jesus is different than what I ever expected. Can I just be honest? He's different. I can tell you that Jesus isn't what I signed up for. Is that that heretical for a pastor to say? Like I I started, I, I wanted Jesus, you see, to take all my problems away. That's what I signed up for. And he didn't. I got new problems instead. Has that been your experience? I, I wanted Jesus like to be like my self-help guru, you know, who filled my life with love, peace, and happiness and all that great stuff, right? And he didn't. I still struggle a lot. Any fellow strugglers? Yes, strugglers, stragglers, all of us, aren't we? You know, I wanted Jesus to come and judge all my enemies and rid the world of all the bad guys that annoyed me. I wanted him to do that, right? And then I realized I'm actually one of them. I'm the worst of the sinners. So following Jesus has shown me that. That's not what I signed up for. See? And I don't know, maybe you can list a few other things that you didn't sign up for when you chose to follow Jesus. But would you agree with me that what you got now is better? Like it's different, right? It's it's like totally different than what I expected, but it's better. And as Jesus continues to work with us, is he not kind of undoing you know, these false, these misunderstandings that you and I have. He's sort of, he's he's exposing these things that we believe that aren't even right and and then correcting that. I'm I'm in this constant state, it seems, of unlearning and relearning. True? And, And man, it's so much better than I had imagined. And this is the Jesus, see? And I find some people, you know, believe in Jesus because he's so different. I think that's me. I I see Jesus as being so incredibly different than I ever expected or anybody else expected, blowing people's expectations, completely like just taking the lid off of it all. And something in that attracts me to him. I'm like, okay, that's gotta make him real. Right, But I know there's other people who are turned off by that because Jesus is so different than they expected. And I can tell you that in my own walk with Jesus, there have been times that I have walked away from him because he was different, because I was disappointed. And then I discover actually, well, I was disappointed because I wasn't quite seeing it from the right angle. And then Jesus reveals something else about himself. Takes you deeper. And that seems to be the process. So our prayer here is this, that as we go through the gospel of Luke, and Karis, you can come. I can play for you if you want. But you guys can do it. (laughs) But our prayer here is that as we go through the gospel of Luke, that God will just radically shift our expectations about Jesus and that where I'm where I'm I clash where where my expectations clash with what the Bible says that I'll be humble enough to let mine go in favor of what the Bible says and that in the process you and I will come to a fresh sense of awe and wonder that we will no longer have a pocket-sized Jesus that we can understand, but that we will have a Jesus that blows our minds out of the water and we'll be happier for it, Like right? Like, I got a Jesus that I totally don't fully understand. He's just bigger than I ever imagined and better than I ever imagined, and I love him for it. That's our prayer in the next couple of months in the Gospel of Luke. Thanks for joining us again this week. We hope that this message truly blessed you. For more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org.